Hey, folks, this is Gary and Justin here, and uh, we just wanted to drop in real quick up top at the beginning of this episode to give you a trigger warning. This episode does get a little uncomfortable at certain points. We already knew this uh, guy, Joe Dorowski, we're talking about is uh, controversial, but this is perhaps the most controversial episode we're going to have with him, and it will feature an alleged rape and uh, animal violence, lots of stuff like that. And so we want to give you a heads up on, on you know, if that's the kind of thing you don't want to hear about, uh, then you probably may want to skip this one. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! I'm sorry, Ben. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one could scare them. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Hey, I'm your other host, film historian Justin Bishop, and it's just the two of us today, Gary. Uh, Mr. Todd A. Davis is not joining us on this episode. He, uh, he, he was. Uh, you, you heard our little disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. Our little trigger warning. Uh, Todd was kind of uncomfortable discussing some of the uh, more problematic aspects of uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's history, and specifically the history regarding the filming of this movie that we'll get into. Uh, and he he just kind of felt like it was best for him to bow out. So uh, we we do miss Todd, and we will have him you know we'll, we'll be looking forward to seeing him on here again in the future but for now it's just just me and gary like old times just like the old days um yeah todd todd's actually um just to be clear not going to join us for the rest of jodorowsky's filmography that we're going to be discussing so uh if you're a todd davis only fan this is your exit ramp for does, a few, a does few todd weeks. davis have an only fans i uh that's that's a good question i don't know he should he should todd look into it um no we are gonna miss todd but it is uh you know just to be clear up front again this episode does have some uncomfortable stuff and we are not gonna dodge it justin said right before we recorded we try to do this thing warts and all and so uh and there are some warts on this guy there are some warts on this guy uh but this is part two of our series titled alejandro jodorowsky cinema of cruelty a uh a series title that could not be more fitting considering that, but uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to keep talking about this guy because it is an important piece of film history. And sometimes history has some, some ugly bits. So last week on the show, we discussed Jodorowsky's debut film, Fondo and Lease. And that film is admittedly, it's you know not going to be everyone's cup of tea. You could say that about all of Jodorowsky's movies, I think, but we did feel that it was an essential part of his story. It's a film that encompassed everything that he was as an artist up until that point, and it serves as the foundation for everything that will come after. Uh, and like all great artists, Jodorowsky had to learn to grow and to adapt. And Fondo and Lise, as we discussed, was banned in Mexico, which is where it was filmed and where it's had it had its first screening 
one of uh, which resulted in a literal riot and in Jodorowsky having to flee the scene for fear of being killed by the mob that it had incited. But although very few people had the chance to see the film upon release, its notoriety enabled Jodorowsky to raise the money, about $400,000, that he needed to make another, even more provocative movie, a film that would turn the director into a cult legend and effectively launch the phenomenon of the midnight movie. And that film, the subject of today's episode, is Jodorowsky's 1970 feature, El Topo. En este desierto viven los cuatro maestros del revólver. Y me has puesto en el polvo de la muerte. Dios mío, ¿por qué me has desamparado? ¿Me amas? Sí. Yo no. Para que pueda amarte tienes que ser el mejor. Toma otra vez tu revólver. to get drinking topo chico oh yes of today. course was that done uh, on purpose or do you just like topo chico because it's good i do i do like uh topo chico chico because it's good i can't even say it anymore what it's also topo because i'm confusing it with the uh, tocopia because jodorowsky once again uh in interviews about this movie talks about his time in tocopia and going to the Chile. cinema uh, so he said he said he went to the cinema every week until he was 10 years old every sunday he was at the cinema and he loved cereals. So this one reminded him of those because he said Westerns were a big part of that. You would get these cereals. And uh, anyway, he had no idea what America was. Uh, just throwing that out there, too, that he said that for him, this is like a fairy tale. Like we're going to get more into it, obviously. But, you know, he, he thought that cowboys basically existed in fantasy land with magic and dragons and fairies. Like not not something that actually existed within history. Right. Interesting. So Topo Chico, so El Topo means the mole. So Topo Chico is like mole boy. Is that what that is that what Topo Chico means? Because <laughs> Chico is boy, right? Or I man. never thought I never thought about that. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but that <laughs> I guess. Well, we are, as always, going to get into spoilers on the movie. So if this is a film that you want to watch along with us, uh, just be warned that if you haven't seen it yet, we're going to be spoiling aspects of the story, uh, what story there is. Uh, I don't know that you can spoil this movie necessarily, but uh, uh, but we will be talking about you know specific plot points in here. So there's that's your spoiler warning for this week. Well, I think we should start this episode with another Jodorowsky quote, like we did last year on Fondo and Lee's, or last year. It feels like a year ago. It was only a week ago, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> last week on Fondo and Lee's. Uh, speaking of El Topo, Jodorowsky would say, quote, I ask of film what most North Americans ask of psychedelic drugs. The difference being that when one creates a psychedelic film, he need not create a film that shows the visions of a person who has taken a pill. Rather, he needs to manufacture the pill. So um, we're going to there's going to be a lot of wacky Jodorowsky quotes. Um, this guy's off his rocker. I'll be honest. Uh, I know we've got. Some listeners on the show who are big fans of this guy. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of in the middle on him. I don't like him as a dude. I do, I do admire him as an artist. Uh, and this is, as we're going to discuss, this is a situation where you definitely have to separate the art and the artist if you want to discuss it uh, without ignoring the, the, the behavior of the artist. But some of his quotes, man, he is just, 
I read this fucking thing. I, so one of my sources for this episode was El Topo, the book of the film. I think I sent it to you, Gary. And like the first 70 pages of the book are like basically it's just the screenplay. And then the rest of the book, which is it's a 160 page book. So 90 of the 160 pages are a single interview with Joe Dorowski and like five different people interviewing him. And he just says the weirdest things throughout that. It, it, it is one of the strangest interviews I've ever read. Uh, so I, I've been like just picking some choice quotes from it just to show kind of how just bizarre this guy is. But I do think that, you know, with that quote in mind, like we should, I, I think when we talk about Otopo, I, I think that this should be seen not necessarily as a story that Jodorowsky is trying to tell, but rather as a pro- the process of spiritual illumination, which this is based on what how, how Jodorowsky describes his film. Uh, Jodorowsky is a self-proclaimed spiritual explorer and his films reflect his own spiritual development. This guy is very into uh, a lot of esoteric mystical religions and practices and we don't have time to get into all of that during this series and quite frankly a lot of it goes over my head uh, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on any of it but in in El Topo specifically he was being influenced by his experiences with Zen Buddhism uh, which is we, we kind of mentioned in our last episode then when we get to the Holy Mountain that's based in Sufism Tusk which we won't be talking about deals with Hinduism and Tantrism, and then Santa Sangre is rooted in an esoteric art of Jodorowsky's own creation called Psychomagic, which maybe when we get to that film, we'll talk a little bit about that. I'm not, I'm, I've read a little bit about Psychomagic. Uh, I have not read his book on it, but from what I've read, I don't fully understand the concept of it, so we'll see how much we can dig into that. Boy, does he get confusing at certain times. Um, He's, yeah. And- there was, a, I did get one quote that, that would fit here where he said, during that time, I had a fantasy that came, he's talking about, obviously, during the time of El Topo, he said, I had a fantasy that came from Antonin Artaud and mm-hmm. Surrealism. The fantasy that film was art, the greatest art that could ever exist. I used to ask, why is it acceptable in literature to have the Gospels, the Sutra, and why can't film be as important as a sutra or a sacred text. Why not? I use Christian symbols, Hindu symbols. I use all kinds of symbols, not as openly as I will in the Holy Mountain, but hidden. I needed to study to do these kinds of films. I wanted to make sacred cinema. So I studied, or started to study Oriental philosophy, Chinese, Japanese, Tibetan, Persian, Egyptian, Kabbalah, alchemy as well. So many things that I studied and I am still studying. I am a student. So there's that guy. Yeah, and all of his movies are really about spiritual illumination, about moving towards enlightenment. Like that's what his characters are. They're on a journey. And when Jodorowsky set out to make his second feature, his goal was the same as it had always been to shock and horrify his audience. And in doing so, to to attempt to unlock their doors of perception to help them on their own path to enlightenment. And he took a different approach, though, this time. With El Topo, he decided to make a film that, unlike Fondo and Lee's, was part of a recognizable film genre. Fondo and Lease, I don't even know what film genre, I don't know how you would classify that as a genre. Uh, but this time he's decided, I'm going to make a Western. He's like, Americans didn't watch Fondo and Lease, so, and Americans love cowboys, so I'm going to make a movie about cowboys. But, you know, what he really did was, he made a film that on the surface appears to be a typical Western. Because by what he was able to do is by positioning himself more directly in a genre that was popular with the movie going public, 
he gave his art the full potential to be seen by the masses. More people were, were going to be willing to see it if it looked like they were going to see a Western. So by pretending to obey the conventions of the genre, he was able to more easily gain favor with the public, which only made it easier to demolish their expectations once they actually saw the film. Now, you'll, you'll hear like certain interviews with him where he said he sounds like uh, or he tries to make it sound like at least like I set out to just do a Western, uh, but I couldn't. I just can't do that. Like, uh, I don't know. That's uh, definitely in the commentary, like at the very start of it. He's like, I just I just wanted to do a Western. Yeah, I have a normal film. I have a hard time buying that. I think he I mean, he wrote a script. <laughs> yeah, and this and this movie is definitely not uh the story is n- nothing like a typical western. So yeah, maybe he uh, needs at the early stages. He was maybe, like, maybe uh, I can do a western like yes, yeah. like the serials he used to watch or something. Right, like right. Well, he's certainly not the first filmmaker to subvert the mythology of the West. The, the Western is we haven't really talked about many westerns on this film or on this podcast. I think the only one we've done is The Quick and the Dead, right? Yeah, and even The Quick like and it, the yeah. Dead is kind of a. I mean, it's very much a revisionist Western. It's very much playing with the conventions of the genre uh, in very different ways than this does. But, you know, the Western is one of those film genres that is like very specifically American, uh, more so than almost any other Western, except maybe the gangster movie you could throw in there as well. Uh, For what it's worth, I I did wonder what Sam Raimi thought of Jodorowsky, but I can't find him talking about it. I'm just curious. I I don't know. I bet he he doesn't like him. (laughs) It's like, this is too too much, dude. I mean, but, you know, other filmmakers by the time El Topa was being made had already started to kind of subvert the tropes of the Western. You know, Sam Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch did it to some extent. That came out the same year as El Topo. Uh, Not to mention, of course, the spaghetti Westerns of Sergio Leone, Sergio Corbucci, guys like that who were taking this distinctly American thing, this American myth of the cowboy and kind of turning it on its head. Uh, And I think that when he made this movie, I don't I I haven't found any evidence of this in interviews, but I do think that Jodorowsky was intentionally bringing to mind the imagery of the spaghetti Western when he set out to make this movie. Yeah, there's definitely uh, points, you know, where he'll describe influences that are in the movie, you know, from John Wayne to he directly talks about in some places like the Spaghetti Western and uh, the good, the bad and the ugly. And I'm trying to remember exactly. I think it's with the with the general that like he tried to make that kind of a standoff. But instead of being so gruff, it's more of a dance, you know, so he's trying to, I guess, a little bit subvert that. But but definitely influenced by the Spaghetti Western for sure. Right, of course. And, and the guy, you know, the guys that we're talking about, like Sam Peckinpah, like Sergio Leone, they they hope to break from the polished West of classic Hollywood movie Westerns, like the John Wayne movies, by introducing, you know, nihilism and amoral behavior into the genre. It became a little bit mean, more mean spirited, I guess you would say. But they still use the landmarks of the West. You know, you've got your uh, cowboys going uh, on horseback through the canyons and things like that. The the plains they they use all this stuff that you see in all these other westerns. But Jodorowsky really didn't didn't have any intention of giving his audience something so familiar to cling on to. He uh, he made an acid western. Yeah, an acid acid western is kind of the. I mean, this kind of was the beginning of that. That's a very like sub 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 genre, I guess. The acid western, uh, but. And there were a couple that were released around the time, uh, like in the year, couple years after this movie. But Pauline Kael, uh, the famed you know film critic, she actually coined the term acid western. Uh, 
using it to describe this film derogatively, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it was actually Jonathan Rosenbaum who wrote the book Midnight Movies or co-wrote the book Midnight Movies, who kind of referred to the acid Western as a subgenre of its own later on down the line. So he's kind of the one who established it as a quote unquote genre. So we we discussed this a little bit, Darren Fondo and Lise, I think, but all of Jodorowsky's films are actually shot in chronological order, which is highly unusual, because for him, the creation of the film itself is a large part and an important part of Jodorowsky's own personal journey. The film basically, to hear it from him, the film creation acts as a as his own path towards enlightenment. And he also says that he always begins filming with a ritual of some sort. So in the case of El Topo, the first shot that was filmed was the ritual burial of the teddy bear that was owned by El Topo's son, uh, which happened to be the teddy bear owned by Jodorowsky's own son. And in fact, the child in the movie is played by Jodorowsky's son, Brontus Jodorowsky. So Brontus Jodorowsky is the first of five children that Alejandro would have from three different women. Brontus's mother was a French actress named Bernadette Landrieu. Uh, Landrieu separated from Jodorowsky while she was still pregnant. And according to Jodorowsky, when Brontus was born, his mother took him away. That Those were Jodorowsky's words. And when she did so, as a kind of going away gift, Jodorowsky gifted his son a toy teddy bear. So years later, Jodorowsky, he's trying to kind of make amends uh, with some of his uh, past relationships. And he begins to ask the mothers of his of his children for custody so that he can raise the kids because he's been kind of an absent father. He's kind of abandoned his children. And two of the women, including Landrew, obliged. And at the age of seven, Brontus Jodorowsky came to live with his father. And when he arrived, he still had that toy teddy bear with him that had been given to him as a gift from his father. So when they began filming, Jodorowsky put a picture of Brontus's mother uh, in an antique frame and told his son, you must bury your mother's picture and your bear. So what you're seeing on the film with them burying the bear and burying that picture, that's Brontus's actual mother, Jodorowsky's ex-wife. Uh, and they're actually burying it and leaving it in the desert. So what you're seeing on the film is, in fact, the reality of what's going on during the filming of it. I can't. Yeah, I think in uh, Fondo Elise, he had a wife that was in one of the scenes that I can't remember what her name there was. Uh, Valerie, I think. Was I that Valerie? Say, okay. I think it's Valerie. Yeah. yeah. She All was right, the, so, the naked no. lady towards the beginning. Yeah. And I, I, so I no. said that I said that Bronson's mother was his wife. I honestly don't know if they were married or not. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, he says this whole thing is semi autobiographical. He literally, like one interview says, like he hadn't seen his son in seven years. Uh, this, this is a quote. He said his mother got pregnant and moved to Europe. And when I say in the film today, you turn seven, it was his actual birthday. He huh. carries a bear I gave to his mother before she left for him. It's a bear of childhood. The photo is a picture of his mom. It was traumatic for him seeing his bear buried. But I only cared about the film. I didn't care about his feelings. Now, Besides the fact that he's put his kid on there naked and he's yeah. buried his bear. Uh, I was looking for some sympathy. And he does say, years later, I had to correct my mistake by giving him a bear and saying, and then he pauses and then he says, well, I did this in a book. And there I gave him a bear and apologized. <laughs> so not in real life. <laughs> so like not just even in, a, in real life. Just in a book. Because <laughs> Jodorowsky has written quite a few like... um autobiographical novels and, and autobiographies like his later ones, the dance of reality 
and uh, endless poetry are about his time as a child and an adolescent young adult uh, in Chile. Uh, and Brontus actually becomes an actor. I mean, th- he he continues to act after this. Uh, he does a lot of stage work, I think, but he has done some films. And when Jodorowsky uh, made film versions of The Dance of Reality and Endless Poetry, Brontus actually stars in them. And plays uh, Jodorowsky's father, plays Jaime Jodorowsky in them, uh, which is, and he's really good. He's a really fantastic actor. He is very, very good in them. Uh, he hasn't been in a lot of other stuff that people have seen, but oddly enough, he pops up in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, he plays Nicholas Flamel in that, which is such a weird bit of casting. Like somebody had to have, I mean, I guess he could have just auditioned for it, but. Uh, that it feels seems like something somebody would have sought him out. Or right, it feels that way, but I, I don't, I, honest, I don't know the story behind that, so I'm not sure. But he does continue to be an actor into adulthood and still an actor to this day, I believe. I mean, I guess so because Dance of Reality and Endless Poetry were like 2013, 2014, so not that long ago. Yeah, his, uh, I think his daughter too is like a musician or something. And his so- daughter's, his daughter's a musician, and one of his other sons is going to star in um, Santa Sangre as well uh so okay. he he likes to cast family members in his in his movies and him and himself in, in fact speaking of which Jodorowsky himself does play the title role of el topo uh the the mole uh, as as we said earlier but the rest of the cast most of not everyone but most of the rest of the cast is comprised of mostly non-actors just like he had done in fondo and lease uh so recognizable Cut. faces here oh you're gonna ask about star trek no <laughs> Well, no, I was just going to say Todd picked a fine time that, that nobody's going to be in Star Trek. So, we'll, yeah, because we'll, uh, uh, I don't think anyone in any of these movies would show up in Star Trek anyway. So I did want to point out that uh, to, to Joe Dorowski, El Topo was a god of vengeance. But he says uh, for that character, he was inspired by rabbis, by Zorro and by Elvis Presley. He sure. said, uh, I watched an Elvis film in France where he was despised. But he wore that black leather, and I wanted that too. He and, also uh, got that idea for the black leather from some, I can't recall the guy's name, but some musician that he had spoken with. I, I, I was somebody who was semi-famous, I guess. No, it wasn't Elvis. It was another guy. Uh, that he had. He was going to like work with this guy, uh, either like doing directing a stage show or maybe putting him in one of his movies. But this guy always wore black leather, like head to toe. And I've, I looked up pictures of him, and he is dressed exactly like El Topo, minus the hat. Nice. Well, black, he black it, leather pants, leather vest, black shirt. I think uh, casting was tough too because they everything they changed, like he said, when they changed like locations or like the script would change or something. So stuff just was too difficult to pin down exactly. He mm-hmm. said he didn't intend to actually even be the lead uh, in the film. He wanted an actor, and he said, I wanted an actor who'd dye their hair, grow a beard, shave it off, et cetera, all the stuff that El Topo goes through. But he said no Mexican actor would do it because – almost all of them had other gigs especially in tv so he was Mm. finally just had to settle and say okay i'm the only one who's going to do this i'll do it yeah Uh, recognizable faces in the cast are rare but there are a few characters who are played by working actors some of who have had successful careers Uh, one of those is a guy named alfonso aral who plays bandito number one Uh, i think bandito number one is the guy who's into shoes like the guy who starts like sticking the shoes in his mouth so he had already had a small role in 
in the Wild Bunch, actually, uh, which had filmed a year earlier. And he'd probably be most well known as El Guapo in The Three Amigos, which was, you know, 15, 16 years after this. But he plays El Guapo in that, which I thought was a weird piece of trivia. Uh, And then more recently, he voiced Papa Julio in Pixar's Coco, which I am assuming is the only Disney connection we're going to have during this series. Uh, Unless you take this quote from Jodorowsky, where he says... Uh, uh, I think Spielberg is the son from when Walt Disney fucked Minnie Mouse. That sounds like Jodorowsky. <laughs> it sure um, does. <laughs> so the foot fetish thing, it comes from uh, Boonwell. Uh, yeah, I read that somewhere, but I wasn't sure what, what it was referencing. He said he said he had a fetish for women's shoes. Oh, I thought it was from a Boonwell <laughs> movie. So it's from Boonwell himself? <laughs> yeah, he said that Boonwell <laughs> had a fetish for women's shoes. So I exaggerated a little bit and had him sucking on a shoe. Yeah, and, <laughs> he sure does. He does that. Uh, that guy, Alfonso Arudo, he is it does have a pretty impressive resume when you go like look into him deep. Like he's world traveled. Like he's yeah. like in Russia, Japan, and like all over the place working it. He'd already directed his first film in 1969. And so then he goes on, he starts doing this stuff like acting, but he he finally directs the film called Like Water for Chocolate in 1992. Oh yeah, he uh, directed that. Yeah, which was oh, pretty wow. damn successful. Yeah, uh, won like something like forty four awards. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I'm I'm very aware of of, of the movie. But I, I don't think his, I've ever watched it. It's based on a, a novel that his wife wrote. Uh, you know, I think it won uh, audience choice and best screenplay. Wow. Um, and uh, the I think that was the Chicago International Film Festival. Um, Mexico has the Ariel Awards. Uh, which is basically like their Oscars, and it won uh, the year it came out. Won like best picture, best screenplay, best directing, best actor, etc. It cleaned up oh. over there, uh, and he was even I think it was nominated at the Golden Globes for best foreign language film. Mm. Uh, he also directed A Walk in the Clouds with Keanu Reeves. Did he really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Man, I didn't look into him as far as you did. I just looked at his acting resume. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, uh, he uh, he also directed this movie called picking up the pieces that i literally don't think i had ever heard of before this but it stars that comedian eddie griffin mm-hmm. uh names like elliot gould but then okay. check this woody allen david schwimmer sharon stone cheech Marin, kiefer sutherland andy dick fred drescher joseph gordon levitt uh lou diamond phillips what? <laughs> all of this movie. Wow. And, uh, the synopsis of it I found was a small New Mexican village discovers a severed hand that is considered a miracle of God, but it actually belongs to a murdered spouse with a husband in search of it. Well, it's called Picking Up the Pieces. Picking Up the Pieces. Okay, that's wild. I have, I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Cheech Marin says it's the, quote, worst film I've ever made. Well, I just looked it up on IMDb, and it is at a solid 4.7 uh, out of 10. So maybe I won't look that one up. Maybe I won't bother with that. David Schwimmer. Did you say David Schwimmer? I did say David Schwimmer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What a, ca- a hell of a cast, though. But... I know it's a bunch of freaking people a in there. I don't cast. Know Sharon Stone? Jesus. <laughs> uh, so wait, it's no Star Trek, but anyway, that's Bandito one. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, oh, oh, I man. wanted to mention too, just uh, real quick. Uh, David Silva uh, plays the general. He he was a uh, he had started in like 1937 in a movie called Beneath the Sky of Mexico. He acted, I think, up until like 1977. Uh, he passed in 76, but he had movies coming out till 77. He's been in like 124 films. 
I know in one yeah. interview I saw Jodorowsky describe him as like Errol Flynn, and then he says that he got fat and lost his hair and start, was not as big of a star anymore once that happened. He got old, yeah. basically. Yeah, he was he was a leading man, especially in the 40s. And uh, but yeah, when Joe Dorowski, he says he uh, dug him up and huh. that, uh, after El Topo, he took off again. But yeah, he had gotten older and fatter or whatever. And so nobody was calling. But in uh, that aerial wars thing again, like the Oscars, uh, he won best actor like three times and best wow. supporting actor once. Uh, not none. Of those four, El Topo, by the way. No, he, well, he's got a pretty small role in this. Although it's a, I mean, it's a, it's significant, but as far as screen time goes, it's not very long. Well, Jodorowsky seems to love that character too, the general, because he says, uh, he he said, uh, I always hated dictators, and I always thought I had created this character based on Pinochet, uh, which was impossible because the movie. Uh, happened before Pinochet came into power, but he describes <laughs> Pinochet as the most hateful character I can think of. He's dreadful, more hateful than Hitler, more than Mussolini or Stalin, because Pinochet is dumb. He once said, if I find a poet in the street, I will punch him in the face. That's the kind of monster he was. He was anti-culture, and it's shameful uh, for those that don't know, and I didn't before all this, but Pinochet was a Chilean leader. Uh, who seized power in a coup on September 11th, 1973. Hmm. And he was like a ruler over Chile from uh, 74 to 1990. Oh, wow. I know I'd heard the name, but I, I'm not familiar with the history. So thank you, Gary, for that history lesson. You're welcome. Who says this thing is not educational? <laughs> so besides El Topo himself, I think the film's most prominent role is probably uh, the character named uh, Mara or La Mujer, the woman, which is a character played by a woman named Mara Lorenzio. Uh, according to Jodorowsky, and I, we do have to preface this again, take this with a grain of salt, because I think Jodorowsky is kind of full of shit a lot of times, and I think he just makes up. I think he likes to write his own legend and the legend surrounding his films a lot. So because uh, you'll, you'll read one interview, he'll say one thing and another interview, he'll say something that completely contradicts that. So everything that comes out of his mouth, I feel like you kind of have to take with a grain of salt, including the story of how he met uh, Mara Lorenzio. He says that the way he describes it is like she just showed up at his door one day. Uh, he says that she, uh, here's a quote, she was in bad shape. At one time in her life, she had taken LSD in great quantities and had suffered. She had been in a hospital for mental illness. I said, I will make a film with you. You will have a starring role. And that's how she got cast in El Topo. Uh, I guess it's not that much different. I put this here because for the commentary, he also says when she first appears, that outfit she's in with the hat and the trench coat the long thing. dress, yeah. Yeah. He says, uh, this woman is not an actress. He never even says her name, which irritates me for like, yeah. where this goes. But he never even says her name. He says he doesn't know her name. Uh, he says, this woman is not an actress. I found her in Mexico City's Zona Rosa dressed like that. Uh, she made her own clothes. She had taken 500 tabs of LSD and she was out of her mind. I never even knew her name. She was either English or American. I didn't even know her nationality. She didn't speak Spanish. She made the film and then disappeared. I dubbed her voice using a 50-year-old woman to make it deeper. Yeah, he does that a lot. Um, like in, in reading in that interview, specifically the one in the book of El Topo, like he when he talks about a lot of the actors and actresses in the film – 
he doesn't like no he doesn't refer to any of them by name hardly it doesn't seem like he just kind of describes them as he describes her as the blonde woman he describes the next lady that comes to the girl that's in all black is like the dark-haired woman like he never says any of their names i don't know if he just doesn't know or doesn't care enough to learn them i'm not sure uh it's it's it is it's kind of strange uh but again he's a he's a he's a guy he's a he's a, he's a strange dude so this was if you look at her uh, Maria Lorenzo up on IMDb. This seems to be her only screen acting role, and that may be with good reason. Uh, and I guess this is a good point to put in a uh, a second trigger warning here because this is where we we can't talk about El Topo and talk about Jodorowsky without mentioning the controversy surrounding one scene in particular. If you're familiar with Jodorowsky, then you I'm sure and you know then you know exactly where this is going. If you're not familiar with Jodorowsky, just be warned that this is kind of some uncomfortable territory that we're getting into. And we'll try oh. to be delicate here because we're two dudes just talking about this. But right, right. But uh we'll get into our reasons why we, we think that it we 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 need to at least mention it uh here in a minute. But basically following the release of the film, and this is also by the way in that Book of El Topo. This is where that quote originally came from. Jodorowsky claimed that the rape scene with Mara was unsimulated. He basically said, I've got the full quote from him here. I don't think I'm going to read the full quote because it just is, I don't like hearing those words coming from my own mouth. So basically what he says, though, is that he tells her that he's going to rape her. He says that we're going we're going to go into the desert. There's two other people. He says a photographer, which I assume he means the the cinematographer, and a technician. I don't know what that means, a sound guy or something. I'm not sure. Uh, he said no one else was there. It was basically the two of them in the desert and two two uh, technicians. And he said I'm not going to rehearse because there's only going to be one take. And then he says that he really raped her. He says I really raped her and I and she screamed is his quote. Uh, and yeah, it's That's the part I thought you were going to skip. Well, yeah. And then I did it anyway, for some reason, uh, just yeah. because I hate myself, I guess, but you can see why this statement could be controversial. It's weird reading it in the context of that interview because the interviewers never like call him out on it. It's very strange, but also reading that interview, I sent you some bizarre quotes from it through as I was reading it. And the interviewers in it seem to be just like, hanging on to every word that he says you know like he's some kind of he fucking has guru. some weird like he's some kind of fucking guru yeah. yeah and and they don't ever question him on that uh, or ever go like wait man that's fucked up what did you just say they don't say anything like that they just keep going on with the interview uh but this quote it, it, it's been kind of following him for his entire career since then but in the wake of the me too movement this quote re resurfaced just as the uh el museo uh, El Museo del Barrio in New York, uh, New York City a mu Art Museum. They were planning a retrospective exhibit on Jodorowsky's work. This is in 2019. And when they were planning that, this quote kind of resurfaced and they canceled the the whole thing that they had, they'd been working on for like two or three years. They just canceled it, which I think was not a bad decision on their part. I think that's I think they did exactly what they should have done. In response, after this thing got canceled this uh this exhibit got canceled he says and i will read this quote beginning to end uh he says uh that well basically what he's saying is that what i said in that interview in the 70s was a publicity stunt that's what he's kind of saying and here's his exact statement 
They were words, not facts. Surrealist publicity in order to enter the world of cinema from a position of obscurity. I do not condone the act of rape, but exploited the shock value of the statement at the time, following years in the panic movement and other iterations of harnessing shock to motivate energetic release. I acknowledge that this statement is problematic and that it presents fictional violence against a woman as a tool for exposure. And now, 50 years later, I regret that this is being read as truth. My practice is centered on healing and love. I invite further dialogue in the spirit of progress. It should also be noted that well before that controversy in 2019, there had been multiple interviews over the years where he had changed his account of what happened, saying that he never raped her or that he made the statement just to shock the interviewers. Gary, you said, though, that in the in, I didn't listen to the co uh, commentary, but you said in the commentary he doubles down on it. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so I have the quote uh, for the point that he starts talking about it. And uh, and, it, and it really he just jumps right into it and right back out of it. But it's uh, from the point that she's saying, like, nothing, nothing, nothing like circling him. He references some director and then he just starts talking about it randomly. And I say that because the guy is just like there's like no time to digest what he's saying sometimes like he just and, and even with something as intense as this, it's just like almost like he brushes it off. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't, and so it's what makes it so weird to hear like him say something and then he, he deny it later. And anyway, here's the quote. Here's what he says. He says, he teaches her, he teaches her how to perform miracles. She doesn't know how she thinks the world holds nothing for her. She is dependent on him. She thinks the world is a void. El Topo will have to instruct her, but he has to do so with violence because she respects power and enjoys humiliation, just as with the general. This rape was authentic. I really hit her. It's all real. It looks spectacular or looks less spectacular than a choreographed one. I tore those clothes for real, and that's why it was harder to do. This was my time of chauvinism. Now I've changed. I found a woman who has completely tamed me. In those days, my vision of women was different. I built that stone-like phallus. I always said it was a portrait of my sex. I said, make it short, but thick. So it's like he goes right into a joke, like right yeah. after that. He's talking about the fucking stolen phallus. So that's why I read that whole thing, because that's literally his train of discussion You're as right. he's going through it. And he just throws like, by the way, authentic rape, like right in the middle of the fucking conversation, which drove me nuts. And then yeah. I'm like, and then he makes a joke, talks about, about uh, that was my time of chauvinism. Now I've changed. I found a woman who's tamed me. Not like an apology or anything. Right. He's just like, yeah, I was crazy back then. I don't know. I'm less wacky now. Right. Yeah, it doesn't quite. I mean, and, and that the quote that I read, his statement from 2019, does read a lot like it was written by a publicist. It, it, it doesn't sound like any other quote that I've ever read from Jodorowsky. It sounds like it was written by somebody who was trying to do damage control is what it sounds like to me. That's, uh, now, that's how I felt, too. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's no way to know what the truth here is necessarily. The only people that really know and could really say are probably Jodorowsky himself, and he has contradicted himself both ways multiple times, or the woman, Mara. Uh, and to my knowledge, she's never spoken about it uh, publicly. Um, and obviously, if he did really rape her, which he has claimed at least twice that he did, that is uh, fucking despicable, and he should be in jail. Uh, and obviously, we are we we would never do anything but condemn that kind of behavior uh it, it's also it's very easy to think that he was just saying this 
to be sensationalist because that's what he does. He says a lot of stuff just to be sensational, especially back in this time frame. But that's not the kind of thing you fucking joke about. Even if you're that's, not, even if you're just saying it to get a rise out of the interviewers, that's not the that's not the way to do it. Say something else. Say you know there there are other ways that you can come across as edgy. Uh, before we were recording, Gary, you said that you you described him as like this guy's been an edge lord his entire life, and that is one hundred percent accurate. That's before that term was ever existed. That's exactly what he's fucking doing. Yeah, so it's easy to think that like maybe he didn't actually rape someone and it would be a thing that he would say. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I look at that and I'm like, uh, and you and you said this, it's not fucking funny. Like yeah. why 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 would that be the thing you say to this person? And I, I don't know. And it just drives me crazy, even like the fact that you could just have a conversation and you should so casually drop it in the middle of something you're talking about. It, and then just move on and make a joke and like laugh about it. And he does laugh. Like he's laughing a lot of the times during a lot of these things. And like, it's like, that's the kind of guy who could rape somebody. And yeah. it's like, so it's hard to say. And as far as I know, Mar or whatever, if that's her name, even disappeared. Like yeah. she just, you know, nobody even talks to her. It's not like, even if she could give a statement, who even knows that she's even alive to this day? And right. It's just I mean, like, it's kind of a, ago. what a, weird fucking story to like say that and then try to take it back later this woman's Mm -hmm. gone nobody knows anything about her and it's just like it's sick it he's it it did completely jade my perception of the guy he just seems like a a piece of shit yeah Uh, because because coming off of fondo and lease you were kind of like you know this guy his stuff he not might not be for everybody it might not be even be for me but you were intrigued enough to want to know more basically right and now and and his and some of his eccentric statements were just like amusing in that kind of way like oh this guy's wacky listen to these weird things he's saying but then you're like oh maybe this guy's just a fucking piece of shit you know like maybe that's who he actually is uh and the thing is and we we had a discussion with todd when he decided he didn't want to continue on this journey uh which we respect. What what I kind of explained was that you know what, like I don't think that we can, we can't ignore the parts of history that are ugly. Uh, and unfortunately, like with the case of El Topo, if you're talking about the history of cult films and you're talking about the history of the Midnight Movie, this is where that begins. The modern concept of a cult film begins here. The modern concept of a Midnight Movie begins here. Uh, and we weren't going to talk about Altopo without mentioning this because that would be disrespectful to the victim. To to pretend that it never happened is disrespectful to the victim. Uh, so I think that it's something that does need to be discussed. And we're going to move on from it here in a moment. But I just want to mention why we decided that we're going to throw this into the a middle of an episode about a movie is because when we do these deep dives into filmmakers on this show, we do want it to be warts and all we are not like just kissing the feet of these filmmakers. Now there are some guys like Sam Raimi. We couldn't find a bad thing about that guy. You know, some of these guys are genuinely good. Some of them are pieces of shit. Uh, You know, some of them are, but nobody that we've talked about so far has done anything as despicable as what Jodorowsky has claimed that he did. But again, ignoring it doesn't change the fact that it happened. And I think ignoring it, in fact, is problematic in its own right because it does need to be acknowledged that this guy did a horrible thing. And honestly, he should have gone to jail for it if if he did in fact do what he he claims. 
Yeah, and it's tough because you're 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 this guy who likes to say all kinds of bullshit all the time, and so like to for us to have to, to decipher which which thing is accurate and which thing is not. I don't know. I I mean the reason I'm still here and like Todd, I I, I believe in being able to separate uh, the art from the artist. I've had to do it a number of times. I mean, and I, and I, I but I but I you know Todd didn't want to do that and i have respected that for people there were people yeah. that i mean listen i'm a i i usually think i'm the the more hardcore about it. i still i think kanye west is one of the greatest rappers of all time and, and as far as i know as of this recording he's still become a massive hitler stand so right. i don't know what the fuck with that guy i don't like anything he's doing right now i still yeah recognize that i i loved his music you know right and, i mean rosemary's baby is is one of the greatest films of all time absolutely one of the greatest horror films of all time one of the films period of all time and it was made by a man who is a who who sexually molested raped statutory rape uh a, an underage girl fact that's a fucking fact and Roman Polanski's a piece of shit who should not be allowed to make movies. That doesn't mean that Rosemary's Baby isn't an achievement as a piece of art. Uh, and I think in in the case of that, you have to you can praise the film and the technique without praising the person who did it. Uh, now, some people can't separate the art from the artist, and I think that's fine too. I think if you can't watch Roman Polanski movies anymore, you can't watch Woody Allen movies anymore, you can't watch Jodorowsky movies anymore, then. That is your decision. I and I fully respect that. I, I'm never gonna tell somebody like, oh yeah, but you should separate the art from the artist. Some people can do that and some people can't. And that's just the way we're that that people approach art. Uh, yeah, uh, it is everyone it is. everyone comes from it from their own uh their own experiences, their own the, their own point of view, the way they they experience the world around them, including art. And some people just can't do that. And that's if you can't do that, fuck, that's fine. You know, then yeah. don't watch those don't watch those movies if that makes you feel comfortable. I fully believe that. And if you go on Letterbox and find you know reviews of this movie, you're going to find a lot of like one star reviews that people specifically cannot watch this movie because of that bit of information. Yeah, they think it's just disgusting, and um, and, and for good reason. But yeah, I, I'm with you. Like, I, I would never tell anybody they have to watch something or they they're wrong uh, for being triggered by something. I left the trigger warning, by the way, purposefully vague at the top of the show, just because another aspect of this movie includes animal death, and that's yeah. another trigger. And I'm not trying to equate the two or do anything like that. So don't get me wrong. I'm just saying things hit people different. And yeah. so I know my wife cannot stand animal violence of any kind. And mm -hmm. even fake. This was, yeah, even fake. And like if a dog dies, were... like like John Wick, like the dog dies. That's a, that's a really hard thing for a lot of people to watch. My wife has a hard time watching that scene. Yeah, even same. though she loves the John Wick movie, she will walk out of the room during that, even though you don't see anything. Cannibal Holocaust still disgusts me because... Well, that's... I mean, that movie's fucked up anyway. Anyway, so... We don't know what really happened here, but I have no sympathy for the guy right now um, right. because he doesn't seem I, I can't tell that he even takes it seriously, even if he didn't do it. Like, it just seems like I don't know, like the guy edgelord's the only way I know to do to to talk about him, like even it, other than rapist, like if he is right. a rapist, but uh, then edgelord's like the he just says some stupid shit sometimes and you're like, what, what? I don't know. At first it went 
from like cute to like now sometimes it feels sinister every once yeah. in a while you know yeah it's really strange man that that like interview that in that book that i keep referencing there are moments in it, and i don't know where it's coming from but he, he's like he'll be talking about something and he'll just go on this tangent and it's all gobbledygook it's all a bunch of like weird like him just stream of consciousness like verbal diarrhea but his verbal diarrhea happens to reference a lot of like Sufism and Buddhism and all these other isms. And then he'll go just at the end of the paragraph, he'll just go like, I love Dr. Strange comics. And then he'll just move on. And that's like, where did that, like, that's an actual quote in one of the paragraphs. He just ends it with, I love Dr. Strange comics. And I'm like, either this guy's got like, I don't know, some Tourette's type issue where, or he's like brick from, from anchorman where he's just like seeing things in the room where he's sitting with these interviewers. Cause he says, I love the yellow dog at one point. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Are you just point <laughs> brick? Are you just pointing at things in the room and saying that you love them? Like, that's what it feels like that scene from anchorman. Uh, but it's, I don't know, man, I can't get a, and I've read so many goddamn interviews with this guy and I cannot get a handle on him. At all. Well, no, I mean, there's there's a section that we're going to have towards, you know, because I, I watched the commentary for the film and, and I struggled to be like, where am I going to put some of this stuff? And then finally I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save it. So I get prompted. And, and I literally made a note that you let this guy talk long enough and just shit comes out. Mm -hmm. And and I was like, I could just read random quotes that Jodorowsky makes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we'll get there. But that's that's how he is. And, and I, I had the exact same thought as you, by the way, that I was like, at first, when we started Fondo Elise, I thought this guy might be like the weird fucking guy at the party that you're like, what is this dude talking about? Right. That's crazy, man. Are you drunk? Like, how high are you or whatever? Mm -hmm. And then now it's like, I feel like he might be the friend that he's either a the friend that's like, you're like, this motherfucker is always lying about some shit. <laughs> He's like, just making he shit just up, making shit up to yeah. be cool. Like he, and he's clearly very well read and he has clearly studied all of this stuff. And it's just like, Oh dude, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like that's what I feel like <laughs> listening to. Him, I was like, just shut the fuck up. Really? Uh, like you're not making any sense. I know you sound smart to you, but to everyone else, you sound like a nut job. Right. <laughs> anyway, let's, we'll move on, but we, we needed to acknowledge that uh, because un it is unfortunately a big part of the story of, the making of this movie. Uh, now, as was the case with, with Fondo and Lise, we don't have a lot of information about the actual process of filming El Topo. Uh, there were, of course, there were no like behind the scenes camera crews or anyone who was like documenting the making of the movie. Uh, so the best thing we have are the things that Jodorowsky has mentioned in interviews over the year, which as we've just noted, cannot be relied upon. So some of this could just be bullshit. For example, in one interview, he notes that uh, El Topo wears you don't see this in the movie. So like as he's filming this, he's wearing black silk underwear with two holes cut in them, uh, one to expose his balls and one to expose just the tip of his penis. And then he also uh, painted a green circle around the butthole. So there's that. So that's good information to have. Uh, that'll be <laughs> or, on um, the uh, quiz later. Yeah. Or, or uh, this other antidote that he says where uh, he says the, the river that El Topo crosses wasn't in a desert, but was actually in a mine and the water had traces of cyanide in it. Uh, so after the scene was shot, the crew members had to take Jodorowsky's shoes off and wash his feet, which he described as a very religious moment. Because this guy, I mean, jo El Topo, the character is very much like a Christ figure at times in this. And sometimes I feel like Jodorowsky sees himself that way as well. 
he say he definitely seems like the guy you could believe that uh i know he definitely refers to himself as like or it refers to el topo as like kind of a moses figure too yeah which is like well the, the whole water thing in the desert stone. like yeah. yeah the water from the stone and him like turning the water from bitter to sweet that's all from the story of moses um and, and in fact he he said that of the filming of the movie, he would say, quote, there was, there was no difference between filming and reality. It was a very religious trip. So he sees this whole thing as like this metaphysical journey of the self. Uh, he also said, quote, again, when I direct a film, everybody, myself included, falls into such trances that there is dead silence because our lives are at stake. And oh, that's the kind of quote where up. I'm like, shut the fuck <laughs> up. Exactly. That's the kind of quote that I'm like, God, dude, you're making a fucking movie. I mean, this is the, at the end of the day, you're making a movie. Because uh, he, he even talks like how he had never ridden a horse before this, like he had never touched a horse before this movie, and he says that like during the scenes when we're filming, the horse does everything I wanted to do, but once the cameras start rolling, it would buck me off. I'm like I don't think that that probably didn't happen at all. <laughs> like you, <laughs> one you probably practice riding a horse for a while before filming the movie, and I, I, the horse doesn't know when the camera's rolling. The horse doesn't know what the word action means. Uh, in some cases, though, where he says our lives were at stake, this was literal, at least in one case, because that suspended bridge that we see El Topo on, you know, it's like really high. And you see him climb like on the edge of it and like hold his arms out kind of. And you can yeah. see how high up they are. That wasn't a bridge that they built. They didn't build any sets for this, I don't think, uh, or hardly any. That was something they just found. Uh, and a lot of the wood was rotting. So Jodorowsky and and the woman, the the dark haired woman who's I can't remember her character's name. She's kind of dressed like El Topo, the woman in black. Yeah. Uh, you know, she they're both on that bridge and they were very much in danger when standing on it because there was a 900 meter drop below it. Uh, and this wood's just rotting and they're just out in the middle of nowhere with no, you know, no safety precautions in place. They found a lot of sets like that. They're like the Western town where some of the, the scenes, the town at the end of the movie and the second half of the movie. Um, that was in the middle of the desert. And according to Jodorowsky, it was a set that had been built for a Western, an American Western movie starring Glenn Ford, you know, Pa Kent from the Superman movies uh, that had been abandoned. So he just they just found it and decided to use it. And Day, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Day of the evil God is supposedly. Is that movie. what he says? Because in the interview I read, he said the law of Tombstone, which is not a movie. There's a movie called The Law West of Tombstone, but that came out in like the thirties and definitely did have Glenn Ford in it. Cause Glenn Ford would have been a child at that time. Yeah. I think. Day of the evil God is from 68. So that would, that make makes sense. a lot more sense. Cause that was like a yeah. year before they filmed this. So uh, that would make sense considering the, the shape that it's in, uh, which, I mean, that's kind of cool that they just found this abandoned town in the middle of the desert and, and were able to use it. You know, it's kind of neat, but there's a lot of weird little antidotes like this, you know, like, for the scene where the the older women with the younger black man, the guy who's like the slave and having to to like wait on them in their dressing room, uh, Joe Dorowski said they kept having issues shooting the scene because the the guy kept getting a boner, which amused the old women. Uh, he also says that one woman with the big scar on her arm, you know, he said that she got that because a like nine hundred pound iron crucifix fell on her arm when she was a child, which is probably also bullshit. Uh, uh, for the scene where the de the deformed people from the mountain that he lives with, when they're getting killed, uh, he threw watermelons at them, which you can tell if you know that when you're watching that scene. Uh, he had to use the watermelons for the gore in that because at that point they had run out of fake blood and run out of money to to buy more. So 
he just threw watermelons at people like chunks of watermelon but then when he did have the fake blood like earlier in the filming uh for the squibs he used condoms which is not unusual i guess i'm sure lots of low budget movies have done that so he used condoms filled with fake blood about which he said when the uh quote when the sacks are broken to get the effect every wound is a phallus that explodes for me this is very beautiful all right all right jodo Whatever, whatever you say, dude. <laughs> um, let's see what else. So, so the the two guys that we meet, the the two double amputees, the, you know, one without legs, one without arms, uh, like the you know the crippled masters that Todd loves so much. You know, uh, they're strapped to each other. Jodorowsky says that he recreated a costume that John Wayne had worn in a movie. I'm not sure what movie. I don't even know if he knows because he just found a picture in an encyclopedia of film. And recreated it for them to wear. So like the big wide chaps that they're wearing and the hat. Uh, also, they apparently hated each other, those two guys. So they uh, they were they were fighting and bickering the whole time. Yeah. And, then, and, uh, and he really made them climb that ladder. And he said that was like a whole day process. Well, yeah, that looks very difficult. <laughs> How yeah. could that not? That could not um, be easy. He definitely in the, in the commentary says two cripples make one John Wayne. That is a that is a quote from Jitter. Wow. All right. <laughs> um, and then in the scene where Jodorowsky comes to, I think it's the third master because he's got the four masters he has to fight. The third one has this like rabbit farm. There's a lot, and there's a lot, you see a lot of rabbits hopping around. Then there are a whole lot of dead rabbits. Originally, he had wanted like 10,000 rabbits to come stampeding over a hill like a cattle in an old Western, but he couldn't find 10,000 rabbits. Uh, so he said he found about 300 of them. And for the scenes where they're dead, he... According to the interview that I read, he says that he killed them himself. He says that he karate chopped them in the neck, which seems like an odd way to do it. Uh, but he says it's a hu- it's the most humane way to do it. But he says that he nobody else would do it, so he personally killed the rabbits himself. Whether that's yeah. true or not, I don't know. But who the fuck knows with this guy? He yeah, I'd seen an interview like that with him too, and said like the cat, the other people were so upset by it, you know. That he but he made his son do one or two or something like that, just because that's part of being a man or something stupid, some stupid fucking shit like that. Yeah. Um, this guy, obviously, like I have no problem making fun of this guy now. So good. And that's that good. That's good. that's freeing. <laughs> but uh, I will say in the commentary of the film. He makes it clear like that he was like, people were so upset with me for like killing all these animals. He was like, I didn't kill any of these animals. He says that uh, they were all he bought all these animals from a slaughterhouse. They were all like condemned to death. They all had like disease or something and they were getting killed anyway. And that he bought them and did everything. Uh, That's honestly probably more accurate because the. You know, the interview I read where he says that he karate chopped them is in that same one in the book of El Topo where he is just it is 90 pages of him just spouting off a bunch of bullshit. I mean, that's where the that's where the the rape confession originated. This it's fucking why it dumb it in like, the commentary. I'm like, oh, so you backed off the animal thing. Yeah, like, yeah. You're not, <laughs> but you're, you're not, not backing, backing off, off the rape. Like, yeah. what is your problem, dude? Yeah, yeah. And. Anyway, I mean, there's a lot of I could go on and on because there's a lot of these kind of stories that he gives in interviews. And I don't know. I think some of them, if not most of them, are probably bullshit. Uh, but at least they're, you know, entertaining to read because it's like, what the fuck with this guy? You know, and like we said, print the legend because of the case of Jodorowsky, he's making his own legend and you never know what's true and what isn't with this guy. Uh, I, I Do you have any other ones from the commentary that I might not have come across in the interviews I read? Any other little antidotes about the filming at all? 
Well, I'd be happy to scroll through some commentary notes. I won't do all the quotes yet, but let's uh, let's look for some interesting fun facts about the film. There was a demand on set. I saw this separately, so this was not in the commentary. That uh, in the contracts of all the actresses, there was a clause stating that they had to not sleep with the director. Yeah, I, I saw that in a couple that. places too. I was like, what? I don't know. That just popped up for me here. Uh, artist uh, Vicente Rojo did the title sequences and the chapters there. He uh, painted like uh, Jodo's hands and stuff like that. But I just thought that was an interesting little side note. Uh, there was when, when Jodo first rolls up into town or Topo f- first rolls up into town, there's the woman on the stake. Uh, yeah. He says, uh, we put her there with a ladder. No special effects. I almost killed her. We left her up there so long. Wait, you no special effects. Then how is she impaled? That's a good point. Yeah. That's or, unless it's I mean, like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe he can... just means like they were separated <laughs> the thing and she was just hanging up there. So like kind of like Hannibal Holocaust style, the lady who's impaled where she right. was sitting on like a uh, bicycle seat or something. Right. With a thing coming out of her mouth. Maybe he's thinking like CG or something. I don't know. Yeah, we didn't have uh, CG back then, Mr. Jodorowsky. Uh, the women that were all dead in that first town. This is another one. It, all these things, like in the light of everything else, just make me just be like, what a dipshit. But uh, all the women, they're like all laying on the ground. You know, he's rolling up and on his all horse. And everyone in everyone where they're all in white at the very beginning yeah. of the movie. He said, I said to these women, don't move. And he says it very mean on the commentary. He's like, I said to these women, don't move. I forgot to tell them that the shot was over. They laid there for four hours. They got sunstroke and had to go to the hospital, but they were afraid of me. They saw me as a god or a murderer. Wow. Okay. That's something to brag. What a brag. Yeah. That's a, this is this is not the boast you think it is, sir. He does uh, say the sound designer was a guy named uh, Gavira, who was a very humble man. He did all the movies in Mexico. He said he was all simple techniques like coconut shells for horses cellophane crackle it around for the fire stuff he was very impressed with all this the sound design is very good just like it was on fondo and lease i think the sound the sound design is like kind of unsettling at times like the sound of the mosquitoes and stuff at the beginning you know he said he literally like came in with like just a bag of garbage and that was like what what he would use Hmm. um said uh the 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 bandits outfits and stuff you're wondering why they're so wild uh they they rented costumes from an opera house and <laughs> so it is a bizarre choice the what they're wearing in that scene yeah he said they had everything and so what they wore was determined by what would fit them so <laughs> that's uh, how they got that one uh it's funny because there's a review about this later but he says there's only one zoom and one close up uh, because of his background as a mime, he believes cinema is about the body movements. TV is about faces. Cinema is about bodies, which is interesting. But because there are some scenes where I'm definitely like, bro, you got to be zooming in or out here. But yeah. whatever. Anyway, uh, <laughs> he says the uh, director of photography's name was uh, Raphael Krakiti. Yeah, same and, as on uh, Fondo and Lise. And just like on Fondo and Lise, said he tied himself to him with a belt and held his waist and moved him around as if he were a machine. That is a quote. Uh, all camera movements were made by just repositioning the DP. So wow. there you go. Uh, he enhanced, this was interesting, I thought, enhanced subliminal sounds and brought them forward. Talks about like with the goats in the background, he'll make the goat sounds very loud. He says that all of his sounds are really made afterwards. 
He says, uh, I thought, quote, I don't want to make films with location sound. If we create sounds afterwards, that they are an artistic manifestation. I'm not shooting theater. There's too much theater in cinema. Cinema is not theater. The accidental sounds have a purpose. I only make actors talk in my films when I can't show what I want to show visually. You mentioned earlier that he um, he dubbed Mara's voice in with an older woman, but he does that a couple of times too. Like he does the, it with everyone. He says he said I think even with himself. Yeah, uh, he says he got a Mexican actor. He wanted a deeper voice with a Mexican accent. Because the um, the first master, the guy with the like mustache and the long hair, that's okay. He's got a woman's voice, and then one of those old women in the scene we were talking about towards the end. Definitely has like a man's voice. Uh, yeah, uh, she she was like a twenty year old guy. He describes her as like El Topo's feminine personality. That's what hmm. she's supposed to be. Oh, that that's yeah. the woman in black. That's the, the oh, woman in black. I'm yeah, talking yeah. about the. But yeah, she does have a man's voice too. But also one of the old women towards the end of the movie with the with the uh, uh, the slave yeah, yeah. the the black guy. One of them has a really deep like man's voice. Gotcha. He uh, said, uh, since I didn't have the means to make the bandits explode, I made them die very, very slowly. So it would be the opposite of classic Westerns. <laughs> do, um, do guys usually explode in Westerns when they get shot? That's, I, I don't think so. So I guess his <laughs> options were go complete opposite or like way overboard. And so, uh, Bandito number one, who we talked about, he's the last one to die and he mm -hmm. gets shot. I just thought this was an interesting little fun fact. El Topo kills him with a rifle uh, and it's in a wide shot. You see like El Topo pull the gun up and shoot him and the squib goes off or whatever, yeah. basically. Uh, he says that was forbidden at the time that you couldn't have, you couldn't fire a gun at somebody and they'll get shot in the same frame. Interesting, uh, huh? Yeah, and so it prevented El Topo from getting on TV. Uh, that was part of I'm sure that's not... I mean, there were pro there's probably plenty <laughs> in this movie that prevented it from getting on TV. I literally noted that as I was writing it or typing it down. I was like, that is not the only reason El Topo did not get on TV, <laughs> <Yeah>. sir. <laughs> there, there's about three minutes of footage in this movie you could show on TV. You know, he 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 talks about with the bandits and everything. I also feature homosexual bandits, which was shocking for the times. The tough guys are homosexuals. It's really weird. They treat the priests as if they were ladies. Then he starts laughing. And then he says, people were not used to seeing homosexuals portrayed like that in films. Now, at every TV show, there is a lesbian, a homosexual, a transvestite, or a transsexual character. It's mandatory. So I think we must also feature necrophilia, bestiality, and nice things like that. Oh, um, hard disagree. Yeah, <laughs> on that one, Jodo. How about that's a that's a quote. I promise that's from the commentary later, but that's from the commentary directly from the commentary. Uh, he said they couldn't find a blonde boy in Mexico, but luckily his assistant was there, and his name was Pablito, and he was the boss of quote gay power, and he was able to get the most beautiful homosexuals. Um, that's what he told. Me. Yeah, I, I was going to save this one for later, but just know that in the between those two quotes I gave you, he also says this quote. I had a friend who was a surrealist, and every time he attended a family dinner, he would rape the grilled chicken and people would eat the grilled chicken where he'd previously inserted his penis. He was into bestiality, not with a live animal, though, but with grilled chicken. Wow. Sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> It's so fucking like what? <laughs> Why are you telling uh -huh. me this story? 
And that's I, that's where I had literally noted to myself, man, if you let this guy talk long enough, he's the, just gonna say crazy some shit. shit. He's <laughs> just gonna say some shit. Wow, yeah. Jesus. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. That's that's a that's most of the behind the scenes stuff that you can mm. get. He'll tell you like little stupid details about. Uh, honestly, after a certain point of the movie, I stopped caring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, one thing that I did find interesting again, if it's true about El Topo was how the musical score was created. Cause you'll see on the movie that the music is credited to Jodorowsky himself, although it says uh, somebody else is orchestrated and arranged by, but Jodorowsky will fully admit and has in multiple interviews that he has no musical ability whatsoever, no musical training. And he claims to have only ever bought one record in his life, which is a movie, uh, excuse me, which is a record called Renaissance of the Celtic Harp by Alan Stivell, which came out in like the early seventies. Um, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a guy playing a harp for the whole album. Uh, so I listened to it. It's kind of boring, but speaking to an interviewer in about 2009. So this was, I think those comment, I think that commentary was from 2007. If I remember Gary, when this first hit DVD. So this would have been a little bit after that. So I'm not sure if he ever mentions this in the commentary, but speaking to an interviewer in 2009, he said, I found a very unique system because I didn't know anything about music. And then he goes on to explain his process saying that he'd take a score from someone like Bach or Beethoven and cut it into small pieces in the shape of a pentagram. He says in one of the interviews, uh, then he randomly combined the pieces into a collage to create a new melody, which of course he did. And then another time he says, this is also still doing work on the music for El Topo. He says he called 21 of his friends to whom he had assigned three notes. So he'd call his friend and be like, all right, you're C, G, and well, I don't know music notes, but you know what I mean. But <laughs> yeah, that one. And then he would call them to come visit him. And then he would like write down the notes in the order that they arrived. And then uh, in another method, he said that he would take small sheets of paper that he'd written notes on, toss them in the air. And then just write them down in the order that they landed, like in the floor. And that's how he created the score for El Topo, which basically what I'm saying is that he created the music for El Topo in the most Jodorowsky way possible, which is in a way that makes no goddamn fucking sense. And it's probably bullshit. And it's probably a lie. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably all bullshit. So once El Topo was completed... Jodorowsky never even made an attempt to get it released in Mexico. He knew that wasn't going to happen, even though it was filmed there. And Mexico actually refused to submit it to the Cannes Film Festival as their entry. So Jodorowsky took the film canister under his arm and headed to New York City to find someone to release the film. And in New York was when he met a guy named Ben Barinholtz. So I want to talk a little bit about Barinholtz because, you know, we've talked about El Topo. We've talked about how... This was the first Midnight movie, uh, and if anyone could be called the father of the Midnight movie, I think it's Ben Barinholtz, more so than Alejandro Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky created this film. Uh, He is often referred to as the father of the Midnight movie, Jodorowsky is, because El Topo was the first, but really, it's Ben Barinholtz that we should be kind of praising here, more so than Jodorowsky himself, I think. Barinholtz's impact on cult cinema and cinema in general really can't be understated. This is the guy who discovered and first showed the world the films of directors like the Coen brothers, David Lynch, John Sells, Guy Madden. He showcased the first American presentation of John Woo's The Killer, introducing John Woo's action films to American audiences. He even has a small role as a zombie in George Romero's Dawn of the Dead because of his contributions to cult cinema. 
See, Baron Holtz was the owner of a movie theater called the Elgin, uh, which used to, it's no longer there, uh, unfortunately, but it used to be located in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. And under his ownership, the Elgin became known for its daring programming, which included revivals of classic Hollywood films, as well as experimental works by the likes of Kenneth Anger and Andy Warhol. So before he took ownership of the Elgin, Baron Holtz managed and actually lived in the uh, place called the Village Theater. It was there that he provided a home for the counterculture with appearances by the likes of Timothy Leary, Stokely Carmichael, Allen Ginsberg. And the Village also acted as a music venue, which saw performances from folks like The Who, Leonard Cohen, John Coltrane, Nina Simone. I mean, he was like he had his finger on the pulse. But. In 1968, the theater was purchased by legendary music promoter Bill Graham, who turned it into the Fillmore East. Bill Graham owned the Fillmore in San Francisco. He uh, turned this one into the Fillmore East. And then when the village closed, Baron Holtz went to purchase the Elgin, which had originally opened way back in 1942. It was a first-run cinema when it opened, and then for several years, it was a Spanish-language-only cinema. Uh, and then when he was seeking to purchase the Elgin— Baron Baron Holtz approached this artist-run nonprofit in town called uh, it's an organization called the Filmmakers Cooperative, and he suggested to them, kind of making his case that this theater would be a really good place to show experimental films and indie films, art house films. So the Filmmakers Cooperative agreed to help him, and they did so by giving him uh, a copy of Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls and forty eight dollars to get started. Everything you need to start a movement. <laughs> Everything you need. Uh, Baron Holtz first saw El Topo during a private screening at the Museum of Modern Art. And of that screening, he would say, half the audience walked out, but I was fascinated by it. I thought it was a film of its time. He attempted to purchase the American rights to the film, but when he, when he was unable to do that, he persuaded El Topo's distributor, who was a music producer named Alan Douglas, to start previewing the film at Midnight's at the Elgin. You see, because of his experience running the Village Theater, Baron Holtz was highly in tune with the counterculture. I mean, you hear you heard that list of names that I, I mentioned that had performed or appeared at the Village Theater. Uh, in other words, he knew his audience, and he figured that the midnight showings during the week, actually 1 a.m. on Fridays and Saturdays, would attract hipsters and encourage a sense of personal discovery and stimulate word of mouth. And he was absolutely right like he nailed it and el topo premiered at the elgin and these were by all like official purposes these were preview screenings is what what all of these were were considered preview screenings in new york uh so it premiered it had its first preview screening at the elgin on december 18th 1970 and it ran continuously seven nights a week all the way through the end of june 1971 yeah, he says uh, about that screening at the Elgin Theater, uh, he said that uh, John Lennon and Yoko Older were there, and uh, his sales, he called him a sales rep, and I think he's talking about this Alan Douglas, he just says Douglas, uh, but Alan Douglas is probably who he's talking about. He says uh, that he went to John and Yoko and said, can you uh, introduce this film? He said that nobody's going to stay and watch the movie unless you introduce it. Well, John and Yoko were were presenting some of their own short films. Correct? Yeah, yeah. So it was there for them. They were screening some short films there. And uh, he said, so after your stuff, can you stay and uh, introduce the movie? And they did. And uh, that worked. He said during that year that it played basically, like basically a year, he said he went there a few times to see it. 
Uh, he said, there was always a cloud of marijuana smoke. When I'd go to the stage to speak, people would put joints in my hands. I'd get on stage with a handful of them. I had suddenly become a mythical creature for them. Yeah, it was. I mean, John Lennon's word, I mean, this is 1970, you know, like he is at the height of his fame. He basically told people, all, all these like counterculture kids who were there to see him and Yoko, he's like, oh, you got to see this movie. It's fantastic. Uh, I'm not sure if he'd seen it at that point. He definitely did see it several times uh, there. But once it started playing, I mean, there was practically no advertisement uh, at first, not even a poster. There was like a crudely written sign that an usher just put outside of the theater. That was the only advertisement they really had. And then for most of the run, there was never any mention of it in the press. And yet from January on, it was doing about $4,000 a week, uh, which I did a calculation on that. And that's something like $34,000 a week in 2023 dollars. Uh, it had become this word of mouth sensation, kind of similarly to what would happen with Deep Throat a couple years later, where we're going to see El Topo would become the hip thing to do. Uh, within two months of its release, limos were lined outside of the theater every night. Like this movie became the must see event for hipsters and celebrities alike. Like if you wanted to seem cool, you needed to go see El Topo at the Elgin. And a cult around the movie was quickly building, aided in part by the Elgin's manage uh, their management's tolerance of marijuana use in the balcony. They just kind of let it slide. Uh, and then people were seeing it over and over again. Well, this cult went public in late March of 1971 when critic Glenn O'Brien published an ecstatic article on the film in the Village Voice, beginning his article with the sentence, It's Midnight Mass at the Elgin. He continued in his article saying of the audience, quote, They've come to see the light, and the screen before them is illuminated by an abstract landscape of desert and sky, and the ritual begins again. Jodorowsky is here to confess. The young audience is here for communion. So they're building this up as like this big, I don't even know the words for it, oh, like metaphysical experience, like religious experience that people have to, it, because this is that, that you got to think this, that's a big part of psychedelic culture in the late sixties and early seventies. Uh, all of these religions that we keep mentioning that Jodorowsky was dipping his toes in Buddhism, Sufism, things like that. This is all a big part of the counterculture psychedelic movement of the late sixties and early seventies. It wasn't just Jodorowsky who was dipping his toes into this. It, he, he seems to have maybe gone a little bit further than, than some other people might have, but that's part of why this movie spoke to the counterculture in the way that it did. And that, that quote from the village voice sounds kind of absurd reading it now <laughs> in 2023. Uh, but the truth is that El Topo did capture the counterculture's imagination like no other movie had probably since Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. The Los Angeles Free Press, when they reviewed it, called it the greatest film ever made, which is a hell of a hyperbole. Uh, Changes, uh, which is another uh, alternative newspaper, called it a work of incomprehensible depth. And now, while these alternative newspapers and arts publications were raving about the film, more mainstream critics were less enthused. Uh, we mentioned Pauline Kael earlier, uh, writing for The New Yorker. She called it commercialized surrealism. And then she went on in her review to say that Jodorowsky plays with symbols and ideas and enigmas so promiscuously that the confusion may be mistaken for depth. Which is pretty biting uh, and very well written, as Pauline Kael tends to be. Right. Well, as the film's cult was growing, 
the New York Times, they kind of got wind of it. And they sent their resident film critic, Vincent Canby, to investigate the phenomenon. And he was unimpressed. Uh, after the screening, he wrote, quote, most of the people around me seem to want to be told whether it was good or bad, if not what it really meant. It's difficult, especially at three o'clock in the morning, to admit that you've been conned. He concluded his review saying it would be a terrible mistake to show the movie at an earlier hour. So he he hated it, basically. Uh, well, yes. after this piece was published, the newspaper, the New York Times, got so many angry letters from fans of the film that they were compelled to print a defense of the film by their art critic, a guy named Peter uh Shedall, I guess is how you say his last name. It's got a lot of consonants in there, but so I think I'm <laughs> spelling it correctly. I'll try to put these uh links to both of these reviews in the show notes if I could remember because they're both still on the New York Times website. But the art critic called it a monumental work of filmic art. So you had people who loved it. You had people who hated it. You had people who thought it was a religious experience. You had people who thought it was incomprehensible garbage. So suffice to say, El Topo was a divisive film. And they have to imagine that 50 years worth of reviews since then have not changed that fact. Oh, Justin, you know, uh, if so, some of these people probably stayed up just late, try, tried to get the full experience. They did the 1 a.m. screening of El Topa, and now they need a nap. <laughs> yeah, so as you can imagine, a lot of these are going to mention certain things uh, in there. And I, and, I, and I was even trying to avoid it, but there's some actually like, decent stuff. Uh, so and and this first one, I'll credit where it's due. This is uh, Eno is the name of this person. Uh, they may have uh, given me the idea for what that that what we called Jodorowsky there because uh, the review gives us gives it one star. It says controversial rape scene, leaving a bad taste in my mouth. No matter if it was real or if he just said it because he's an edge lord, I was completely lost after that one hour mark, and I couldn't say what was going on. Nor did I care. You can separate artists from art. It's true if the art is shit and the artist has a great personality. In this case, both are shit. Cool outfits, though. I mean, the outfits are cool. Yeah, yeah. El Tofu. El, El Tofu. El, El Tofu. tofu. <laughs> That's a, a weird Al song. <laughs> El Topo could be a very cool-looking Western image. I, mm -hmm. I could give him that. Uh, BR says one star. Uh, I understand the role of gun violence and cultural violence in Westerns, and I see how Jodorowsky amplifies these experiences in his movies. Scenes like the gunman shooting the villagers in a line highlight his perspective on this kind of random and personal violence. This type of critique makes sense in all its excesses. What does not make any sense to me is having El Topo violently rape the first woman to have any kind of dialogue or introduction in the film. And not even 10 minutes before that, she has already groped and forced to kiss several men. What is the point of this kind of sexism? It serves no purpose. The commentary is unnecessary and jarring. I would not recommend this film despite its potential cin cinematographic or metaphorical benefits because of its gross disregard for women. It's hard. It's hard to argue against that one. I mean, a lot of times you read these, somebody needs a nap reviews and it's like, Oh, you're reaching. But I mean, the women in this movie are generally treated like crap, just like lease was in Fondo and lease. That's true. Lucas puts it simply with his one star review and says, what if God smoked cannabis and were a misogynistic, pretentious fuck? 
Let's see. Uh, Matthew Nolet. Half Star says, this film is a painfully average Western. Nothing to remember about it. I was mostly going to give this a four or five out of ten and never uh, think about it again. But after I found out what Jodorowsky did to his co-star, that man deserves to be imprisoned. I thought Herzog was an awful piece of shit for destroying a forest for a boring film. But what happened in the production of this film and is in the actual movie is hands down the worst thing a filmmaker has ever done on set, maybe even offset. And that's not even touching on the animal cruelty. Anyway, this was a really bland Western with a bit of research. It's the worst film I've ever witnessed. Fucking hell. I just wanted to watch an acclaimed 70s Western from a beloved filmmaker. He's a terrible piece of shit, and I refuse to watch anything else of his, both because I don't want to support someone like him, and this was just not any good, even not considering that one scene. It's just boring. No personality. Dialogue is really unnatural. Cinematography is really great on occasion, but it's just point and shoot for the most part. Another hard one to argue against. (laughs) Half star from Audrey, who says there's only one thing worse than a rapist. A rapist who directs garbage, overall acid westerns for boomers who aged into QAnon shamans come 2017. <laughs> that's, that's good. Uh, Anna, one star. Notice I picked out some women here because yeah. I just felt like that was deserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anna gives it one star, says, I think Jodorowsky's comments defending his statement on raping Mara as a marketing sensationalist ploy are a sign of the problem with El Topo. It feels entirely sensationalist, shocking for the sake of shocking, gratifying violence and misogyny to sell a product. A regurgitation of symbolism to make it look smart only adds to the problem. It's one massive toxic masculinity ego trip. Nope. These are some very well-written reviews I know. Uh, compared to some of the other ones that we, we get occasionally during this segment. Like these are actually like, like very coherent, well-written reviews where you're like, all right, you're not just like some neck beard behind a, a keyboard, you know, just spouting off something. You're like, these are very thoughtful, or at least that one was, I mean, several of these yeah. have been. I agree. Uh, Art Vandelay, uh says oh, George that, Costanza, yeah. huh? Because the title of this review is El Crapo, so yeah, at least right. I get one of those in there. <laughs> as far as I can tell, El Crapo is little more than a couple hours of random killing. It makes a fistful of dollars seem Shakespearean by comparison. When people aren't being murdered, they're involved in all sorts of sexual deviance. Maybe that sort of thing was cutting edge in 1970. I see the IMDb trivia blurb lists the weirdos who love this film. Kind of surprised violence. Uh, wait. I see the IMDb trivia blurb lists the weirdos who love this film. Uh, so what he's talking about is in the trivia, there is a list of all the celebrities who are supposedly fans of this. David Lynch, Marilyn Manson, John Lennon, blah, blah, blah. He said, kind of surprised Violet's porn enthusiast and foot fetishist Quentin Tarantino hasn't been mentioned yet. Since I don't drop acid or consume any legal or illegal pharmaceuticals, this movie's alleged charms are completely lost on me. Slappy McGee gave a half star. Says, the fuck... Not only pretentious as hell, which you can sometimes get around, but also contains that unneeded rape scene that was apparently real, as well as the real beating, both delivered by Jodorowsky to his actress on screen. That is unacceptable and um, a crime. 
But you know, whatever, power. Let's you get away with anything. You also have a fully naked little boy for the first 30 minutes running around with Jodorowsky for no goddamn reason. Makes zero sense and is completely unnecessary. That's just file stuff, man. What is this guy? Why, why is this guy not locked up? Again, probably power. The 70s, corruption, fucking disgusting shit. Uh, it's art, though. Okay, I guess it's okay. Uh, and then in parentheses, he gives a little PS. It says, there are very few films that I would like to give a negative rating to. This is one of those films. If you love it, fine, whatever. You can fuck off or fight me, but move the fuck on. I got no time for you and your bullshit. Wow. He got real, <laughs> he got real angry there at the end. Yeah, he definitely needs a nap. Zoblis says, have star frothing at the mouth of a misogynistic tract and an exercise in autofellatio by a delusional reprehensible narcissist for the price of one. Human and animal welfare were clearly deemed of secondary importance during the production in favor of Jodorowsky's extremely creative and provocative artistic vision of himself as Jesus and of the women as ungrateful, unreliable creatures who only deserve to be sexually assaulted. Even if the stories of the writer-director star raping an actress and murdering a hundred rabbits on set turn out to be untrue, I will still think of this as the most hateful and repulsive pile of film to ever be mistaken for high art. And uh, we'll leave it with Molencholy. She gives it one star, and she says, After jerking himself off for the duration of a feature-length film, Jodorowsky looked at his beaten and misshapen dick and came up with the title for this movie. No, I did not enjoy watching a maniac massage his mole for two hours. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. So I guess I should ask, this is a good time to ask you, Gary. Um, when you when you watch the film, as of, I mean, we, we have our opinions on Jodorowsky as a person, uh, which I think we have been pretty clear on, but what did you think of the movie when you watched it? So I watched the movie before I read any notes or any other stuff about it. I wanted mm -hmm. it to let it wash over me, as you mm -hmm. said, with Fondo Elise. I was trying, I'm trying to give him this credit firsthand. I feel like this is going to be a really unpopular opinion and sound kind of crazy, but I liked Fondo Elise better the first oh, time yeah? I watched it. Really? Like I just didn't, this movie, I was like, I was into it for a minute. And then it's like, I don't know. It just starts to drag like by the latter half. Like I, I just think the second half interest. drags. Um, I, I've seen this movie like three times and the, that second half always starts to lose me. Uh, the first half where it's more of a, a, a more of a Western really yeah. uh, is, is somewhat compelling. Uh, but for me, yeah, that second half goes on 20, 30 minutes longer than it should. Yeah. I, would I, agree I feel with that. like, I feel like because you you get to that part at about this is a, right at this movie's right at two hours two hours and five minutes and you get right at about fifty minutes or so when he uh, gets taken you know where he gets shot and gets taken by the people in the cave and that last act really should have been more of like a third act instead of a second half if that makes sense uh, should have been a, a final third like it should have been like twenty to thirty minutes long not an hour long, uh, which is what it is. So yeah, it, it always kind of loses me at that point. I was into it. I mean, you know, with the idea of like uh, the, the basic, it's not the first, or maybe I don't know, I'm sure it's not the first time anybody used it, but it's a often used 
uh concept of you know you're fighting the masters or whatever it's you yeah. know, the video game you just go through these different levels you get to the boss and fight them that's that's, that's a fun idea i can always get behind that but, sure uh, yeah it just uh i don't know it, it, it changes and it turns into something totally different and i and i get it it's him so I was and there is compelling stuff in that last that last half I think yeah. I think it just spins its wheels a little bit too much. No, that's definitely it. It just it just for some reason, uh, even during the commentary, honestly, like when I'd watch it with the commentary, I was just like, I don't know, like an hour and fifteen in or so, you know, you start to be like, if I have to hear one more of these fucking stories from him, or <laughs> like if I if I just and that's what the commentary I mean, but it's just like you're just watching and you're like, God dang, this movie is forever like it is i don't know i just i did not get into it as much i don't think it's like as objectively looking at it as a movie i don't think it's as horrible as a lot of what those reviews seem to think are and i think a lot of the bad reviews didn't even give it the full chance uh with that said you know we've obviously already talked about that you know good on you if that's your thing like don't don't you know i get it i get not watching it or yeah. not wanting to finish it uh, sure yeah i get but, that too and and i think a lot of people who don't like it who are who are not disliking it because of Jodorowsky's behavior uh or alleged alleged behavior on set i think if for, for the people who don't like it just for other reasons as far as like judging the movie on its own I think a lot of people don't like it because it doesn't make sense to them. And they're and and you know, you could say that about Fondo and Lee's too, but I, I think what it is is that a lot of people if you're trying to figure out what the meaning behind every piece of symbolism that Jodorowsky's throwing on screen, then I think you're going to end up frustrated. Uh, because like I, I I've I've said several times, I've been reading a lot of interviews with this guy over the last couple of weeks, and uh he will tell you like what every single thing in the film stands for he's throwing in a lot of uh christianity symbols he's throwing in a lot of buddhism sufism he's throwing in all kinds of stuff uh but does it all up add up to an, a coherent message not really um like it doesn't uh and even even people who like the film i don't think i think if you say that it, it is fully coherent then you're lying to yourself but i i honestly don't think that's his goal in making this movie because you know, like I said about Fondo and Lease, that movie was really about it was about a journey, but just like this is the first half of the movie is a guy is a guy walking across a desert. Uh, the same thing that with Fondo and Lease were doing. It's about a journey to find enlightenment or to find oneself or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but I think for Jodorowsky, it is about the journey itself, not necessarily the destination. Because uh, he even says in this when he talked in, in one interview that I watched. I think it's on the Blu-ray where he says this is about uh, him trying to find himself and he keeps finding nothing over and over and over because it's really more about the th- that journey itself. So if you're trying to like find meaning in that, I don't think you're going to find any. Uh, but, you know, speaking of the phenomenon that this movie became, because it's really hard to watch this now. Granted, we know things about Jodor- what Jodorowsky has said that audiences that first saw this at the Elgin in 1970, obviously would not have known or heard, you know, so we've got a little bit more context, but it is still kind of hard to watch this movie now and think like, how did this become such a phenomenon? 
1970. I mean, I know people were doing a lot of drugs, but like, how did this, how did this movie become such a phenomenon? And it certainly wasn't the story uh, that, that did it because the story it was, is pretty straightforward. It was uh, sisters. It was, I think the images that he's putting on screen, some of them are, I mean, I think it's a great looking movie. I really do. I think that cinematography wise, there are some striking images. There are some very shocking images on screen. There are all of them striking or beautiful or shocking or whatever you want to, whichever pick and choose what shot you're talking about. They're all very distinctly Jodorowskian, if, if that's a phrase. Um, but I think that's what, I think the images are what drew people to it and all of this religious symbolism even if people in the audiences didn't know what it meant like it they they thought it was you know profound because it was including all of this stuff uh, i think he, de- he of- definitely always seems like he's throwing so much shit at a wall like it 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 just i mean i i I, yeah. I do think that he has an idea of where he's going or what he's doing but it does feel like it's a lot like you're trying to uh you know obviously there's like the general who who's like this powerful guy like there's that whole segment there's the Mm -hmm. casual violence they have in el topo dealing with that but then there's the idea of the woman and that whole story and then the whole latter half of the movie and it's just like i don't know it feels like there's like like he's just got so many things he wants to get out Mm -hmm. and it's just it's it's tough to follow everything yeah yeah i mean and and if you're trying to follow it as just a straightforward narrative i don't think i think like i said i think that's going to be very frustrating for you uh one of my favorite quotes that i found during uh, my research came from roger ebert in a review it wasn't his original review of the movie uh but he re-reviewed it in uh i think it was in 2007 like when this movie finally came out on dvd and in that review he says the film exists as an unforgettable experience but not as a comprehensible one and i think that's kind of the, the the good summation of this movie to me because i do i do think it's unforgettable i think anyone who's seen this movie is not going to to forget it it's going to stick in your mind uh whether you like it or not but it's not it, it is not comprehensible uh but like all of his films i think it does it, it you you kind of said something along these lines maybe in, it might have been today it might have been in our last episode but it kind of reverberates with confidence like Jodorowsky fully believes with absolute certainty in what he is doing and he is committed to his vision no matter how wild it is and and that's i mean you can you can feel that in the film like this guy is committed to the bit and whether you are receptive to it as an audience member or not like this guy is definitely like he he feels like he knows what he's doing and he feels like everything that he's putting on screen is very profound uh, whether that comes across is debatable you know uh i mean there there was one quote from the commentary that i got here i was gonna save it for the end but since you said that it's i like, actually fits really perfectly here but i mean this is a quote that i would send to somebody because i i know people uh like this uh that, that i feel like would re- resonate with with something like this but it's a, it's a little long but I'll, I'll read it real quick he says uh it's cinema i cannot create an idea it has to come to me i plant seeds in my unconscious I go to sleep, and then images emerge. I don't have ideas. I wait for them to appear. It's a different approach. It's like the thirsty explorer in the desert, imploring the heavens for a little rain. At night, I plead for my unconscious to work so that I can have the idea that I need for the next day, and they come. 
what's the difference between what I do and what commercial artists do? In order to guarantee their investments, commercial artists look for a market. Let's make a film that satisfies the tastes of the social sector of this nation. Let's give them the product they want. So let's have some sneak previews, and we'll make changes according to the imbeciles' opinions. 40, 50, 60 imbeciles can change the ending of a movie because their vulgar taste must be satisfied. Commercial artists find an audience that already exists. There is another attitude, the attitude of a true creator, who little by little creates his own audience. Through the years, he imposes his way and creates his audience. Patience, perseverance, poverty, that's what you need. Patience, perseverance, poverty, honesty, authenticity. It's said that in film, opinions are like assholes. Do you know the rest of this quote? Opinions are like assholes? Yep. Everybody's got one. And I've also heard, and they all stink, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but imagine Joe Dorowski saying it now, because here it is. Uh, it's said that in film, opinions are like assholes. Everybody has one. Everybody shits feces and ideas. You must ignore them. <laughs> when you make a film, when you make a film, you don't have to listen to anybody's opinion, not even that of the audience. A filmmaker has to do what he feels no matter what, even if people leave the theater. Even today, there are always three or four people who walk out of my films. They can't take them. I don't care. I've done what I wanted to do. Time will tell if what I did has value or not. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an interesting quote, but he is very much like an artist with a vision. Uh, and some people are going to like that vision. Some are not. I mean, you can watch El Topo. And for some people, this is sheer exploitation. You know, you've got uh, violent, horrible images on screen. You've got uh, him parading people with deformities, which if you hear him talk in interviews, he seems to have a a, a, an affinity for but it still feels a little exploitative you know uh, and then some people are going to watch this and see something more profound uh, I think it's somewhere in the middle um, I don't think it's as profound as he thinks it is I don't think it's it is exploitative at times I think uh, it's a film that welcomes analysis but it doesn't really offer any solution like if you like I said if you try to figure it out you're you're just going to be mad uh, it's a film that has Layers and layers of meaning, but most of which you're only going to realize after Jodorowsky has explained them. And even then, his explanations don't always make a lot of sense. So I feel like sometimes if, if a filmmaker really has to explain a movie for you to enjoy it, then it's not it's not uh it's not doing a good job as a movie necessarily you know uh david lynch famously does not explain his movies or explain the meaning behind some of the things in his movies but his movies are also highly entertaining whether you whether you understand every moment of them or not you know so there's that's a fine line that i don't think that jodorowsky has is quite walking here uh, I mean, regardless, as an aesthetic experience, it is, I mean, at times it is intoxicating. There are some uh, images in this that will stick with you forever. Whether you enjoy it or not is up to you. Um, when the film was being advertised back in 1971, when it was being being advertised like on Broadway, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, um, one of the publicity taglines kind of sums it up. And this is actually, this tagline is similar to what Roger Ebert wrote, but one of the official taglines on El Topo was, what it all means isn't exactly clear, but you won't forget it. And I think, I mean, that that does kind of ring true. Yeah, it's, 
the I, I it's like there's a part of me that wants to appreciate all that part of it. Um, there's some cool concepts that he includes and all that. I will say that, that, you know, like I try to view the thing objectively. It is tough. Maybe I'm getting old and sentimental or something. And I mean, and I don't I'm not talking about the rape here, but the animal scenes uh, mm-hmm. bother me like they has yeah, like they the amount of dead animals there and i can't help but think like about it sounds so sappy but like there's there's actual fucking horses like that are alive hanging out there like what must that horse be thinking right now right. you know yeah. like, what yeah. the fuck is going on here and uh mm-hmm. and and the kid getting walking through that shit and the and I, I don't know like it all it was like i was watching i was like what the fuck with this guy man that's a lot and it's not fake like you can tell it's not fake like uh they're real dead things all over the place mm-hmm. i don't know why that bugged me but but then it is impossible now i feel like to watch it and not think about the the other side of it with uh the, ac- the accusation of rape you know yeah. like that's uh or the admission of rape or whatever you want to call that like mm-hmm. that's it's disturbing and, and especially when you throw that in and you can't help but start to notice all the other shit like i mean the way women are treated like some of those reviews mentioned the the idea that this woman who and by the way i think i even saw an article that republished some of those lines from that that interview or maybe it's what you sent me there was more he goes into about that woman having been raped before and all this yeah that's stuff. all in that same review i just didn't want to read all that <laughs> yeah it's just like fucking disturbing the way he mm-hmm. talks about it and and i get if even if it's shock value it's like what the fuck with that yeah. and then you start to think about that this girl like her character even is just that she's a sex slave to this guy Mm-hmm. And El Topo saves her. And and the story is that he like she can't fit for herself or do anything, like find food or water. Because she's looking for the eggs and the he, she's looking for the eggs in the sand and can't find them like he had and can't get the water out of to come out of the stone like he had. Yeah. And so but once he once he gives it to her, then that is yeah, that's what she needs fucking disturbing yeah and yeah. uh and then it's like that's how he treats women and then and then she and becomes... that's in the movie regardless of whether he he actually assaulted her or not that is in the movie as a story yeah, that is definitely like part of the story yeah. and uh and, and and then that she what she's able to have the power of a man like him is like she's gonna immediately use it to like seek more power and to be mm-hmm. like she's you know evil malevolent to like right for right. she she's changing him to become like this killer you know mm-hmm. like he was he was uh you know he was he was out for revenge and stuff and doing some killing at first but it was always bad guys and now right. she's making him become this like murderer mm-hmm. you know or he has uh, to go fight the masters to to like impress her basically yeah it's just it's all kind of just fucked like, it is it, it is it is. Uh, I think that this is a movie that, you know, although there are some unpleasant things that we we have to discuss when talking about it, you know, like we said before, it was a phenomenon that can't be ignored. And it did start this whole midnight movie movement. Uh, so it is an important piece of history, even though I think today it doesn't hold up uh, partially because our our viewing of it is jaded by kind of what we now know of its production. But also, I think that it just, it's a very 
1970 psychedelic hippie counterculture movie. And if you're not part of that culture and we were nowhere near being born yet at that point, then it's not going to have the same effect on you. But at the time that it was playing in the theater, you know, we mentioned him before, but one of the people who saw it was John Lennon. And John Lennon was a big fan of this movie. He saw it. uh, Ben Barinholt said he saw him there three or four times seeing this movie. So Lennon had had recently returned to New York from France. And when he was in France, he and Yoko Ono had seen Viva la Muerta, which is a film that was directed by Jodorowsky's old friend and the co-founder of the panic movement, uh, Fernando Arabal, who wrote Fondo and Lise, the, the play. So he he had made a movie and uh, Lennon loved it. And Lennon actually tried to convince his manager, Alan Klein, to purchase the rights to Viva La Muerta. But after he saw El Topo, he changed his mind and he then asked Klein to purchase Jodorowsky's film. So in June of that year, this is 1971, Klein's company, ABKCO, uh, which is just rolls off the tongue, <laughs> doesn't it? Uh I assume it's pronounced just by the letters uh, or Abkako, Abkako, but it's it's Alan and it's Alan and Barbara Klein Company. Barbara, I think, was his his wife. Um, That's what it stands for. But anyway, uh, they bought the rights to El Topo, and when they did, they immediately withdrew it from the Elgin, where it was still selling out seven nights a week. Sure, they were happy about that. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure Ben Barinholtz was very happy about it. But uh, the reason that Klein did this was because he had big plans for the film and he had big plans for Jodorowsky saying, uh, my whole idea was to build him up as an international director. He thought he could be like the next Fellini or Kurosawa. And he signed Jodorowsky to an exclusive contract. Then a few months later, November 1971, Jodorowsky's already at work on the script for his next film. I'm not sure if it was The Holy Mountain or something else because he talked about wanting to do like a pirate movie for a while. Uh, Like he had the idea to put Frank Zappa in a pirate movie and he had all kinds of weird ideas. Uh, He's working on the script for his next movie and Klein rented a block long billboard off of Times Square that cost $60,000 a month. Now, if that is... $60,000 $60,000 a month in $1971, that would put it at like $439,000 today. So I'm not sure if I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but $60,000 a month is the number that I read in Midnight Movies. Jesus, that's big yeah. billboard, I guess. It's a big it's a block long billboard, so it's, you know, it's it's big, but he plastered this billboard with Jodorowsky's name and he leased a Broadway theater to give El Topo its official New York premiere. Because remember, those other midnight screenings were just preview screenings, right, officially. So this is the official New York premiere. And uh, as a side note, around the time that this premiere happened, which is nearly a year after the film had opened at the Elgin, and El Topo and Ben Barinholtz had kind of invented the midnight movie as we know it, five other movie houses in Manhattan had already begun to show midnight movies. Like this had already caught on uh, less than a year later. Uh, and at, at the Elgin, specifically after they lost El Topo, they started showing other movies at midnight. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich's Targets, which features a late career appearance by Boris Karloff, that was their immediate follow-up. So when they lost El Topo, they started showing Targets. And then other theaters were showing films like Viva La Muerta was one of them. Uh, Equinox, I don't know if you've seen that, but it was uh, co-directed by future ILM pioneer Dennis Murin. Uh, Romero's Night of the Living Dead 
was one of them that because it had only opened a couple years earlier and it started getting midnight screenings and Todd Browning's Freaks was another one. So I guess this is a good point since we've just mentioned all these other midnight movies and cult movies. Uh, if you were to do a double feature with El Topo, which I, I don't see you doing, uh, <laughs> uh, what or if you just had if somebody wanted something else to watch that was along these lines, uh, what would you recommend, Gary, for further viewing? Man, uh, I saw um, somebody recommended, and I've only seen this once, but uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Uh, oh, Panos which, Cosmatos, right? The guy who did yeah, the movie? Yeah. Yeah, and I've only seen it like once, but I've never seen that like one. That, that, would, that would work probably. Yeah, I guess so. I've never seen it, so I can't really say. I mean, I've seen Mandy, but a lot, lots of times, <laughs> but yeah, never beyond I've, Black Rainbow. I feel like anything by like Harmony Corinne or something <laughs> yeah. would probably work. Yeah, I could uh, see that. Um, I kind of lean towards doing another acid Western since this kind of was the first acid Western. I, I mentioned earlier, there were a couple of others that were released around this same time. There's one that was directed by uh, Robert Downey Sr. Uh, that came out, uh, gosh, I think it was 1972 called Greaser's Palace. And then there was another one called Zachariah that came out in 1971. And usually if you read about like the acid Western, those are two that get mentioned a lot alongside El Topo. I haven't seen either of them, so I can't, you know, vouch for them necessarily. Uh, one that I have seen that's a more modern day uh, example of an acid Western though. So I guess this would be my official choice is Jim Jarmusch's uh, Dead Man from 1995. Uh, kind of about this, this guy, Johnny Depp, who uh, encounters... It's like just some weird stuff. Like it's it's almost like a journey into the afterlife. It's very trippy. It's shot in really great, like uh, high contrast black and white. It's a really really cool movie. I think uh, it's a. I, I like it. I enjoy it more than I enjoy uh, El Topo personally. But Dead Man by Jim Jarmusch, I think would be would be my pick. Have you ever seen I don't it? Much about it. I don't think so. I don't no. think I've ever seen that. Yeah, it's worth checking I, out. It's uh, I mean, it's easy to find because Criterion released it years ago, so it's it might be even be streaming on the Criterion channel. I know right now it's streaming on HBO Max, so you can find it pretty easily. I just googled, uh, give me a movie like El Topo, just to see what would happen. And uh, <laughs> you specifically one, googled that phrase. Give me, yeah, give me a movie. Give me like a movie El like El Topo. <laughs> one movie I see in a lot of these places is uh, Naked Lunch, and I've honestly never seen that. But David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch. Yeah, people are like suggesting Naked Lunch, which I, I don't see that. I don't see that correlation at all. I <laughs> like came I, up in more than one list, so I'm that's just like, so weird. weird. I, I mean, other than it's weird, I don't see the correlation. Other than it being another kind of strange movie, but Naked Lunch is is really outstanding. Yeah, uh, it's maybe it's movie. just maybe it is just the weird thing. Maybe. They're just like going for it. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. I just say another J Jodorowsky movie. Just yeah, like the Holy Mountain, or so, which is, uh, speaking of, <laughs> so, uh, El Topo's success had kind of turned Jodorowsky into a phenomenon. You know, he was a major figure of the counterculture, uh, which, of course, did nothing to diminish his ego. He told the Los Angeles Free Press, I want to be the Cecil B. DeMille of the underground. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be long before he was rubbing elbows with some of the most important figures in the counterculture, not just John Lennon, but folks like Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda or uh, or Peter Gabriel, who he actually collaborated with on a Broadway show based on a concept album uh, that, that they that Genesis had done, and um, it never got made. But the story behind it is pretty interesting. And then his notoriety and, and his 
uh, increased, you know, visibility. Like people knew who he was finally uh, gave him the ability to get his next film made with a much higher budget than, I mean, a higher budget than both of his previous movies combined. I think he, he got about, about a million dollars for his next film. And that million dollars was thanks to Alan Klein, John Lennon's manager, who now owned the rights to El Topo. Uh, and thanks to Alan Klein, Jodorowsky's next film, his most ambitious film yet, would be able to be made. And that film is going to be the subject of our next episode, which is 1973's The Holy Mountain. Mm-hmm. So that's it. Part three out of four of our Jodorowsky series. We're halfway through. Uh, hopefully there are no more like horrible stories behind the scenes on on the next couple. I don't think there are, but uh, I haven't dug far enough into their history to promise you that quite yet i but, can uh, say that i honestly didn't know enough about the dude to know this this last one uh but yeah pretty surprising um quote around el topo i had discovered goddard i really liked his perot le fou i won't say it influenced me but it had an effect on this scene when she says nothing 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 this scene might make us think about goddard but I am nothing like Goddard. He is a great intellectual, and I am not. Goddard has one testicle. I have three. Those three are intellect, emotion, and libido. He named his, he named his three balls. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's this guy. I did like this quote. Uh, in my film, I eliminated the concept of good and evil. The bandits redeem themselves or the good guys become bad. There is no clear distinction between good and evil. That is an American sickness. All of the American film books say in the first 10 pages of the script, you must introduce the bad guy. It's all based on a bad guy. The bad guy is a mere abstraction. Nobody is absolutely bad. And if there is someone who is absolutely evil, we're all to blame for their existence. How about this one? I think there are multiple influences in the film talking about El Topo. I have them all the influence of all the books I've read and all the films I've seen of all the winds that have blown against my skin of all the stars that have exploded during my life during my lifetime of each manifestation of the non manifested of each flea that shit on me, especially a flea I met in 1945. It shit on me in such an incredible way that it changed my life. I'm sure that flea is in my film. Oh my God. Uh, the general is is metaphorically el topo's father you must confront and castrate him brb i gotta call my dad (laughs) (laughs) oh lord oh man i don't know what else to say about this guy but i guess we'll figure it out with the holy mountain because we are on this journey gary we've got two more episodes uh and then we'll move on to something a little more fun (laughs) <laughs> maybe or at least a little a little less difficult i guess is a, is a, is a better way to say it because we're yeah. I'm, I'm still you know i still enjoy doing the research and presenting the information even when the information is is not pleasant but shit i listen to like true crime podcast all day long and that's not pleasant but you know, i don't i don't expect that we're only going to run into good people i mean we dropped some names in the discussion with todd when he was letting us know that he wasn't going to be a part of the series anymore which again we respect but I mean, part of what our thing was is that there are going to be people at some point yeah. uh, that, that are shit. Uh, I, here's another quote from the commentary that he just drops casually at a certain point. 20,000 years ago, the female goddess was kicked out of religion and the hunters introduced the male god. It's been 5,000 years since the Bible has reigned where the woman is considered a demon, starting with Eve and Lilith. Women have to stop playing these four parts they've been given. 
whore, mother, saint, and dumb. It's like, <laughs> not going to win anybody over. Nope. <laughs> you are not, sir. Oh, uh, Lord. So I, I just now, now the part that I feel freed on is, you know, and I hate saying it like just happily, like I'm just saying it at the cost of everything else. It's just like one thing I'm not going to feel sorry for is giving this guy shit. Yeah. Because, you know, like we had this conversation, I feel like last time where we were like, oh, don't act like your opinion's absolute. You could have like, you know, I want to be, I want to present this in a balanced way. And now I want to be like, if I can crack a joke at this guy's expense, I'm going to do it. Like, <laughs> fuck this guy. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, nothing I say is ever going to impact his ego. He yeah. is very sure of himself. He sure is. And, and very crazy. He sure is. Well, that's it for this episode, I guess. Uh, Gary, we want to let our listeners know where you can be found on the internet. Yeah, I am at this is Gary Horn uh, and uh, on all the socials at that. You can also find uh, the wrestling company I work with at NWA, uh, at TIPW Show is my wrestling podcast. And that's it. And I'm at Justin underscore Bishop. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You can also find the show at cinema underscore shock. That's on Instagram, Twitter. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Discord or at cinemashock.net. Like, rate, and review, all that good stuff. And until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And be excellent to each other. 